Uh, hello, and welcome to Carbide Content. I'm David of Contraption Collection. I am Grant of Fellowship Blades. I am Dalen of MachineWise. And I'm John of Triaxis. So uh, what have you guys been up to this week? Oh, just uh, I've, I have an employee. Um, and that's oh. crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it's super exciting. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been very fun. And I also got an intern, um, which is a little bit weird, but also very exciting. Oh, man. So, so you potentially have two people working for you? Yeah. <laughs> wow. All that's that's awesome. Yeah. Um, no, it's it's a world of difference. And so I've I've been talking to Dalen a little bit about this, uh, but like Zeke comes in. Zeke is a full-time machinist. So he comes in at 6 a.m. and starts machines. And so for the first time in God knows how long, I just like meander into the shop and the shop is running and I just sit down and drink <laughs> water. Like I don't have to like run around machines, push buttons, get everything running. Like it's just going. Um, that's, nice. that's fantastic. It's Yeah, it's crazy. Because yeah, I mean, the first thing I always do when I get to the shop is hectically run over to start loading a pallet into one machine while I turn the other machine on. Exactly. That one warming up. That is such an annoying feeling too when you're like, I gotta do this, I gotta do that, I gotta do that. (laughs) Right? No, let me tell you, like having the the wherewithal just to sit down and know that everything's already going is awesome. And uh, yesterday he started sharpening and there's rock solid. Nice. He's now doing, I believe, everything in the shop. (laughs) That's that's awesome. That's really awesome. And he's not like feeling overloaded or anything? No, he's got time to chill. Uh, so Zeke's a little bit, I don't want to go too far into his backstory, but he was yeah. an artist before he was a machinist. And so, oh, nice. Um, when he's just like downtime chilling, he was like, dude, I don't, I need like something to do. And I was like, I need well, things. Yeah, draw some art, like make some sticker art. And he's like, oh, yeah. So, so whenever he's chilling, he's doing some sticker art and t shirt art. Nice. Yeah. And once I get the VF1 up, he'll probably have less time. Yeah, on his, exactly. On this plate, because that's going to be his machine essentially. Yep. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's it's been awesome, and he's he's loving it so far. And, Hell yeah! Yeah. Is he also doing assembly? You said. Yeah, oh yeah, he's he's been doing assembly. Uh, so he's been working Fridays for the past two months or so, and yep. he's been doing assembly every Friday. Um, and that took like a couple weeks to get into the groove, but now I don't even touch assembly. He's been doing it uh, just fine, and then yesterday sharpening and so i i barely touched the knives uh except like final qc and then i'm still doing tumbling just because i like to watch the tumble yep um but yeah no it's been crazy oh that's so cool uh how how have uh how's y'all's week's been going uh david what what's going on with you uh david i uh i guess um I was just experimenting with tumbling a bit. That's uh, about it. So I was using just uh, like half full. The tumbler was half full of seven eighths size stones uh, from CM Topline. And I thought about getting what uh, Dalen was using for tumbling, mm-hmm. but it was kind of right. It is a little pricey. It's it's stupid expensive. I cannot like master. Oh, so. yeah. So, and CM top line is always sold out. So what I did is I got, I could get, they had in stock the three eighth size of the like ultra aggressive tumbling media. Uh, so I mixed those two together and it seems good. It seems like an improvement and nice. like, I'm a little worried about the seven eighths <clears throat> being like too much 
big media that like it weighs down the blades and they don't circulate enough. So I'm, I'm trying to see if it seems like it's better having uh, the smaller ones mixed in or not. Um, and so, I don't know. It seems like, uh, you know, you go for like five hours for me, that's what it seems like to get rid of tool marks. Okay. Um, but then I, uh, experimented with polishing too. So then I put them in porcelain cylinders with polishing compound or Ooh. like, uh, the fluid, which, you know, I think it's alkali maybe. Um, and, uh, I, I, I tried, I never done it. I actually, I don't think I've tried polishing blades before. I think I've only tried, uh, aluminum, which, you know, was kind of underwhelming. Uh, <laughs> but I was, they do turn into like a mirror pretty quickly. And then oh. I, I had them go for like 16 hours. Oh geez. Um, uh, maybe more. And, uh, it's pretty dang polished. It's, it's mirror like, but, but you can still see tool marks, yeah. uh, like in the mirror. Uh, pretty strongly um it's kind of weird how that works so uh i don't know i because i i feel like i don't like it being so matte just from tumbling yeah um so i kind of am trying to decide if i want to do a polishing step um, right or, or something else um and then uh well yeah i don't know so i'm still kind of experimenting with that and then the heat treating people I was using were also doing uh, um, bead blasting. And so I, I think I want to try tumbling some that were bead blasted. Because mm. I was doing this before heat treating, knowing it could be screwed up in heat treating uh, just because I wanted to see the results faster, I guess. Yeah. Right. Uh, so I don't know. I still have to figure out the process because definitely I'll have to at least do some of the research redo some of the polishing after heat treating, if not do some of tumbling and polishing after heat treating. Yep. I've noticed the surface finish from like Phoenix heat treat after heat treat. It's the same. They're just usually kind of gold. Yeah. For you. Yeah. And so they, they, they'll do bead blasting to get rid of the, the discoloration. Oh, Um, okay, cool. Uh, and I've, I've been trying to figure out if I do or don't want to do that. It's, it's nice cause it gets into like some really hard to reach areas that I don't think my tumbler could necessarily get. Yeah. That is a benefit. So I don't know. Okay. But that's uh, like the, the most interesting things I've probably done. Yeah. It, I mean, I think David and I both did blasted washes on our blades for a while. Um, yep. If you're trying to get rid of tool marks and especially if you're trying to get rid of uh, like heat treat oxide, he, uh, blasting is the way to do it. Oh yeah, it's just unfortunately laborsome. Um, it, yeah, it really is. <laughs> yeah, I can't do it myself yet, but I might look into it. And I kind of like the look of it for aluminum too, so I might do it eventually. But yep. yeah, it'd be nice to not have a, a, a step that's requires you know you standing there the whole time. So yeah. is that that polishing compound you just throw it in with the tumbler? Is, no, is it's it like it's a, the same thing with uh. It's just a different. So, CM Topline, and I'm assuming other tumbling companies sell a fluid that you mix with water. Right. And, uh, you know, and I had tried Simple Green stuff before, which didn't seem to go great. Um, and so, uh, I was using like the VF100 for the regular tumbling, but then for the polishing, 
you know, that stuff's just like soap and a little bit of oil to prevent rusts, basically, I think. Yeah. But the the polishing compounds are uh, they're either basic or acidic, but I can't completely remember which is which or if uh, if it's always the same or not. Um, and uh, I, I assume there's got to be some like microscopic grit or something in it because uh, I, I don't think the porcelain actually really removes material. I mean, it, it might, but they also describe it as burnishing. And, and burnishing is when, you know, you have, when I think of like a, a roller burnisher in a mill or something, it's like you're you're smushing the metal. You're smushing the, yep. the high points into the low points kind of. Right. And so I don't know if that's like happening on a microscopic scale. And so maybe there's oh. no grid at all. Uh, but, uh, mm. you know. I know so, there's like pin tumblers. Um, what's that? I know there's like, there are like pin tumblers. Oh, for yeah, like yeah, yeah. Metals like gold and silver and all that that are used to kind of, I think supposedly case harden the gold a little bit. Mm-hmm. Y- yeah, you could, uh, you could get, you could just, uh, I think people will use pins a lot for, maybe for, uh, uh, like cartridge reloading for guns. They uh, oh okay. They might use pins for the shells. Uh, I'm not sure, but yeah, you can use metal pins in tumblers similar uh, to the porcelain, and it has yep. a burnishing effect. Uh, although it might be more like shot peening or something, it might not yeah. be exactly the same uh, effect on the metal. <laughs> and then there's also like magnetic ones where there's oh. like magnetic tumblers where it all the pins like it warped around and spin around because uh. It's it's for smaller stuff. It's more for like jewelry and stuff. But it's like a metal, uh, or a, you know, a a jar of water with a bunch of pins around it that get whooshed around by a magnet. Kind of like those hot plates with the magnet in it that that chemists use and all that. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of cool. Um, yeah, but I assume that's probably not good for what we do. Yeah. No. Definitely not. What have you been up to, Dalen? Uh, let's see. Nothing incredibly new has been going on. Um, Grinder's been fantastic still. Uh, I'm finally going to put an ad out for a machinist because it's it's so past time to do that. Nice. You yep. you were working with one person though, right? Yeah, I have an assembly tech right now. Um, and so having a machinist would more or less make it so the shop could run without me. Okay. Um, I'm definitely at a point where that kind of needs to happen so I can focus more on day-to-day operations, ordering. I'm so bad at ordering. Everything I order is last minute because I don't have time to get to it. Yep. I'm sure all of you guys are in a similar boat. I definitely don't have end mills arriving today that I wish arrived three days ago. <laughs> yeah, right? I'm sure yeah, we all I... also haven't spent, you know, absurd amounts of money on overnight shipping because we needed something. Yep. yeah what kind of a experience level are you looking for your machinist hire like somebody who can just run machines or somebody who's like actually a critically like a critical thinker and then can do like the extra stuff you know what i mean so there's a program there's kind of like two maybe three directions i can go you know i could go the super experienced um do it all machinist that has cam experience and uh you know, I've been doing this, like, been in this trade for a long, long time. I can go a basic operator route, which, you know, can just run the machines, change some tools, do offsets, stuff like that. Or I could go for, like, a kind of fresh out of college 
or are fresh out of like machine in college. Um, someone who's a little younger that has a lot of potential. I like the first and third options the most right now. Um, I'm hesitant to hire like a veteran in this industry because I don't want someone that has a chip on their shoulder. Mm, right. I don't want someone that, you know, might clash with me, especially someone older who, you know, might not be super keen to working with another machinist that's a lot younger. Right. And I think that they're, uh, you know, more skilled, which is very, very possible, but at the same time. So I'm not sure what yet. I'm just yeah, going to kind of put an ad out for now. I want to reach out to some colleges as well. I tried yeah, last year to reach out to a college and uh, I never got a response, but. Yeah. I was going to say like, we're all kind of like have pretty fluid moving shops. Yeah. So things change on the fly pretty quick. Like, Oh, we're doing a new product now this week, but yep, like exactly you know, older shops are, they're just running the same part kind of thing. Yep. Yep. And I'll, my main product line, the Serif, uh, my, you know, the, the high end titanium mm-hmm. knife Yeah. that's, I think I'm going to have to start working on a V2 like pretty soon. Um, they still sell, but they've been selling slower. Gotcha. Yep. But, uh, I mean, I'd love to find like a, just a super promising, uh, you know, uh, kid basically that's just coming out of like a machinist college. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think like, uh, we might be kind of fortunate in that we make things that are cool. Mm-hmm. And so I think that might interest more people, but probably, probably more of the people who uh, are more likely to be uh, not experienced already. Um, you know, may- maybe some machinists are, are uh, in the position where they want a job and, and are willing to, to work in this kind of new business. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I I used to really, really wish I could hire a machinist who had a ton of experience because then it's like, oh, I'm, you know, banging my head just trying to learn how to machine titanium or hard mill or right. figure out how to make fixtures. Now it's to the point where I've got like enough confidence where it's like, you know, yeah, maybe it'd be good if I hired somebody that, you know, they just uh, kind of it's more of like I'm teaching them and trying to, you know, figure out stuff with them than be over reliant on them. Right. Uh, You know, as I was, when I was more desperate, uh, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Cause definitely it's also how much you can afford to pay people. And so, yeah, someone with 20 years experience doing like job shop work for aerospace is is, uh, probably going to cost quite a bit. Yeah, I am. I am an unfortunate in a in a fortunate situation that I I can afford someone that's pretty talented. Um, so we'll see which which direction I end up going. It'll really all just depend on some application I start getting and just doing some interviews. I think either way, you you can't really go wrong. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I'm, I in this past week, I have you know Zeke who's been. Uh, machinist for I think around 10 years now nice um, and then having the intern come in who's just very excited about becoming a machinist which is I um, mean that's also fantastic oh uh, no it's absolutely incredible um, and that's w- the reason I picked up the intern is because I was originally going to try to find like some high school intern kid uh, to do assembly 
But I was like, no high school kid's going to be passionate about this kind of work. Um, no, exactly. But well, high school not... kids love butterfly knives. <laughs> well, yeah, they love flipping them. Um, but making them is kind of a whole different thing. And especially like the guys that are modders or like, you know, Mantis and Psycho and all these other guys that are doing their own thing. Like they're not going to want to come work for a, a production shop. They're going to still want to continue their own path, which is great. Exactly. Yeah. I think, know, so. I, I think there's I think there's guys out there though who well there is but in my neck of the woods I just kind of gave up on trying to find them yeah uh, okay. but then I was out literally playing airsoft something I haven't done in five years because um, I was out of whim I was like oh, this, this would be fun and I met this kid and he was like man my grandpa was a machinist and it's just something I really want to do but he passed away before he could teach me and I was like oh well I have a machine shop like if you want to come check out the shop and then it turned into he was like, I'm really into knives. And then uh, I told him, I was like, oh, I have a business. And he goes, well, I think I follow you. And, and it, it was just <laughs> like this kind of magical connection. I was like, I, I will give you an internship like if you want this. That's awesome. Uh, it's just meant so, to be. Yeah. And, and I definitely will say um, having Zeke with me while like we're taking on the intern because interns do require some attention of, as yeah. opposed to like Zeke. I kind of just let him go. Um, and he, he manages the shop now after a couple weeks of training where an intern is like, we're going to have to truly watch him, uh, train him as we go. And so having Zeke where we can bounce off ideas with each other and, you know, if I need to go sit on CAD for a while, I can either show the intern this thing or Zeke can go show him the machines while I'm doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so either way you can't go wrong, but I will say if you, if you get a young guy, who's fresh out of college or whatever, it's going to take a lot of your time to get him. Oh yeah, it will. You know, someone more in line with Zeke is like a turnkey solution. Whereas you're kind of more so investing into someone who's younger. Exactly. Uh, And I think I want to lean towards more of a turnkey solution right now. Um, I really truly do love the idea of bringing on younger skilled people that have a lot of promise and, you know, training them and help teaching them so they can, become a really skilled machinist um something that i do want to do in the future regardless yeah i I can imagine it's scary you know if you're trying to save yourself time but then you know you feel like you you found someone who's young and excited but they're inexperienced and so you feel like you have to you know literally every single step guiding them and you know the, the scary situations are like when you don't know what people don't know and so you feel like you have to explain everything. And then, you know, if you're trying to explain everything, then some stuff, people don't like hearing stuff they already know. Mm-hmm. And so that's where they can feel patronized or that's where, you know, people can check out a little bit and, and yeah. miss important details. And, yeah. and then it can be hard to, to effectively communicate. Right. And, you know, as, as I have been a machinist in many shops for all of my adult life, uh, I have seen many, you know, veterans that uh, aren't exactly the best or most skilled. I've seen oh, a yeah. lot of crashes that just should not have happened. Yeah. <laughs> and it scares me a little bit. I would like to not have to replace a spindle if I can avoid it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I've yet to crash one of my machines. I kind of like to keep it that way. Not even just like a broken end mill? Uh, broken end mills, sure. Um... What do you guys count as a crash? I kind of crash as usually a tool holder into something that it 
shouldn't have been into. Basically, the any older contact. Yeah. Or, okay, or that, any that, like actual rapid moves with an end mill that ends up in it in, in shattering. Yeah. See, that's what that's. If I've had crashes, it's more like that where I, you know, there's just some fudging of the tool offset or something, and so the vice gets the jaw gets a little bite out of it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's usually not too bad. It's 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 more so the 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 slightly worse crashes where um a tool offset is wrong by several inches, or you you know smack a yeah. tool holder sideways into a vice. Those are probably some of the worst crashes you could do. Yeah, yeah to me, I, I really crashes sort of like a the the spindle being the unstoppable force and the yep. table being the immovable object. As soon as they <laughs> connect, I call that a crash. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. Okay. I don't think I've really had a crash like that bad then. I haven't on my machines. Um, the closest I, I got was uh, my my operator ran the wrong program on the wrong pallet, so ran an end mill through some hardened steel clamps, but even that was pretty fine. So I, I've used a. Uh, you know, a cat 32 tool holder as an end mill where it cuts through a fixture screw or something. Hell yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Yep. Rubbing those screws with the, with the collet nuts. Yep. Man, yep. these are all so mild. Yeah, right? <laughs> oh no. I do, I do this like once a month. Oh <laughs> <laughs> man. I have smashed so many ER nuts. Well, you're what? doing fourth axis stuff. Not, though. That's not really smash them, but I guess like, rub them pretty yeah. hard yep and self-clearing like, yeah, yeah, yeah notably notably i've only had like two actual z crashes where the alarm where the alarm kicks on where it's like z okay. overload yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah which honestly for a for a c column mill not the end of the world like and i check it after like yeah you know check yeah. tram all that stuff usually the yep. other thing that's going to go in a crash like that is going to be spindle bearings and even then it's not really going to be like an immediate thing yeah and uh yeah, and I've only, I guess, like, I stalled the mill out one time using a face mill, and that was, like, pretty interesting Whoa. because it, like, stalled out, stuck in the material, and then you, like, go up in Z, and you could actually watch the entire column, like, move over, like, 20 thou. Oh, shit. Wow. Wow. out. I've never stalled a mill. I have never stalled a mill. Experience. Right? Yeah, so then I checked that, and it was still good, and I was like, okay. <laughs> okay. Cool. Were you just running at, like, really low RPMs where the the gear ratio wasn't right or something? Yeah, this is, okay. like, this is pretty early days. This is okay. probably, like, 200 RPM or something, yeah. probably. Oh, gotcha. Coming. There is yeah. no torque on that motor at that, RP, at that uh, RPM. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So, cool. yeah. Interesting. <laughs> the I lathe, hope. crashing the lathe is, like, I haven't crashed oh, the lathe, God. but that's, like, oh, something that's- I... That that's could like be easily done. Yeah, that, yeah, that's what keeps me yep. off lathes. Yep. Uh. I've I've done some small bumps on uh, like like a Citizen L12, uh, but if you're going to be setting up like a screw machine, you're going to bump something. That's an inevitability. Yeah. yeah, that's a whole different type of like. Yeah, it's in a way it's less scary than like a six inch chalk hitting a uh, giant, you know, turret. Oh, yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, but, oh man, the, yep. Yeah. I ran a bunch of like, pause, together. ST 10 wise, ST 20 wise. And, um, I was definitely very careful with those. Cause I really didn't feel like crashing into the chuck on those. Yeah. I, I have not crashed a lathe. However, I have fixed a handful of crashed lathes. 
Yep. Um, and all of which, there, I guess there's just so much torque between every component in a lathe that as soon as they combine, like I've seen essentially 12 by 12 by 12 cubes just sheared in half um, just because the amount of torque that was on. It was, I mean, to be fair, the lathe was the size of a school bus. Yep. So, <laughs> but like, yeah, the amount of torque involved is like, dear God. Right. I mean, the rotational mass on even a pretty standard size turret lathe. I mean, it's just, there, there's just so much mass in those spindles. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why they'll only go up to like 6,000 RPM or, you know, I mean, even that's the, high. That's that, that's pretty high. I think the yeah. ST10 had like 3,000 RPM. That sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was like screaming. I, I tried to avoid that RPM if at all possible. Yeah. But, like, I mean, the stuff I want to make, too, if I have a lathe, is fairly small. And so having only 3,000 also sounds, like, lame to me. Right. So, like, the, the Citizen L12s that we ran, um, our, our, like, standard OD turning um, RPM was 2,500, uh, pretty much regardless of diameter. And, I mean, we would turn shafts that were 30,000 in diameter. My wow. Goodness. Yep. Huh. Yep. And uh, it was actually pretty good. Okay. Yep. Hmm. Right? So what's new yep. with you, John? Were uh, you trying to hook up air through through air to, for your machine? Oh, me? Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of a long story, basically. <laughs> so it's all, like, plumbed up to the, to the uh, TSC union in the Haas. But... To actually use the M code, you have to have Haas come in with a service tech and a service key and upload uh-huh. a patch file. And uh, yeah, so and, and that that's costs where some amount of money, I'm sure. Yeah, and I don't know what it costs, but I'm sure it's not cheap. And um, so I'm like trying to figure out how to use the uh, what do you call them? It's like the spare M codes in the back of the cabinet. Yep. Yeah, they just trigger. Uh, relays so yeah. trying to figure out how to do that and okay. my, do you have like a missed m code available to you like is like m17 or something so i've tried all the ones that were basically where they're when you turn them on they stay on until you use a cancel because yep. there's also m codes that require like a uh what do you call it they wait for a certain signal okay like basically a value from like zero to two fifty five, I guess. And it's like just a, uh, just like a feedback signal essentially. So what I need is like a relay that, or an M code that's like you like M 83, for instance, is for tool air blast, but not through spindle. Right. And that yep. just comes on and then 84 shuts it off. So that kind of thing. Okay. So I was like looking in the, the air cabinet trying to find one that would work. And there isn't another one except like, M83, which is for air blast. Ah. Is, um, is this going to replace your air blast, or are you going to do both at the same time? No, they're, they're going to be both. Okay. All of yeah. the air. Uh, yeah. So, so basically, it's it's easy enough to plumb in. As long as you have the union, you literally just, there's a you know plug you take off, and then you put in a, a whatever you call it, a quick Solenoid. connect those. Oh, yeah, yeah, and r- run it through the column where everything else is ran. And um, yeah, I don't know, I just... It's like one of those things. It's like you buy, you know, TSC ready or whatever. And then, <laughs> right. Hey, wait, 
We still yep. want some money from you. Yep. I feel like anytime you have a tech come out, you're looking at about a thousand dollars. Yeah. Just yeah, to th- get them out there. I think. I mean, my... I feel like that could be worth it though, for sure. Oh if it yeah, works. probably. Especially with the tool life, you can probably get out of that. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, like I, I saw, I was looking at through air option that the, they show that you can use it to power air power tools like speeders, and so. Oh, yeah. You could be using a tool that's air powered and be running the tool at like sixty five thousand RPM right. for engraving and stuff. Like that's just—I mean—that sounds amazing. Oh yeah, I would love uh, all of the RPM for like all the texturing I do. Oh yeah, I do. I don't know. I'm sure those those air tools, uh, like those those air speeder spindles. I'm sure they're they're clearly designed, you know, to cut. I just always wondered about how much torque they actually have. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you're blasting air through it, I mean, uh, you know, it's not going to be like 50 horsepower, but it, no. I, I imagine it's pretty good. I mean, uh, air can for, have torque. It can. Yeah, that's yeah. that's what I'm saying. I think you can have plenty of torque if you're just using like a 16th of an inch ball end mill. Yeah, because it all be small tools anyway, so... You know, for me, it'd be maybe even smaller. Yeah, right. Um, I'd love to use some like you know tiny little twenty thou ball and mills. Do some really intricate patterning. Yeah, yeah. No, it's that's just like not really feasible dream. right now. It's crazy to think like if you can spin a tool that fast, like you can actually still cut with it, and it doesn't immediately just turn into like mush. <laughs> you know. Yeah, right? And uh, so I've been like doing more hard milling. I feel like every time I post on Instagram, I'm only hard milling. Yeah, <laughs> that's but all I see. Every time I see a story from you, I'm like, yes, more hard milling. <laughs> so so basically this last last batch of four blades, I've been like ex- really experimenting with essentially like surface footage for uh, hard milling. And I'm using just regular four flute, like Alton coated ball end mills and nothing okay. fancy. Like yep. the finishing toolpath uses like a hydraulic holder, but it's not like that's making a giant, giant difference. Right. Just better um, run out. Slightly yeah. Better tool life or, or maybe better finish. Cause you're just, you know, cutting with all four flutes more evenly. Yeah. So, so basically like I'm running them and the tool paths look, they look good. Like the finish is good and consistent and everything. And, but I noticed like if you basically increase the surface footage up high enough, you start to get the actual, what I imagine is the correct looking tool path, like the correct looking finish. Right. You have the little, I don't know what you call them. I guess they're, they're cusps, like the actual, you can see uh, where a chip was sheared away. Yeah. You can see the individual chip load. Yeah. And so I think yesterday I had the actual realization that the tool, that the finish that looks nice, but versus the cusp looking finish is actually rubbing because the Mm. tool life on the, uh, the rubbing one, I guess the like a little more like cloudy looking is not good, like noticeably like chipping end mills, but the one that has the kind of cusp look to it, the end mills last a lot longer. And I think that's because the actual like chip load is correct for the surface footage or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. So digging in, making a chip. Yeah. And so I guess what I'm trying to do now is the hard thing about, so there's, like I've been doing a lot of reading on like hard milling, I guess. So if you match your chip load, so like I guess that's feed per tooth with your step over, it's supposed to basically make those cusps blend together because they're 
they're it moves across the surface at an equal distance. Right. It's supposed it gives you like to, an even grid. Yeah, and so it's supposed to look better, you know, just with the naked eye. Um, and the issue with the blade is because it's got like the hollow grind on it, but it's not a straight arc. It's actually like it's almost like a uh, what do you call it? An arc that's not an arc. I forget what the word is. Like infusion. When you, yeah, spline. It's kind of like a spline. So the top is sharper, is more of an angle than the bottom. It's hard to actually get that to work properly, like actually matching step over. Yeah, and yeah, it is. Because fusion won't, there's nothing in fusion that kind of like lets you tie them together. No, I think the closest may be like steep and shallow, but that's not going to give a, a consistent finish either. Yeah, and so what I'm using is steep and shallow. Okay. Um, and it's a, it's actually, it's contour is what it is. It's a contour tool path. Yeah. Just like a 3d contour. Yeah. And yeah, so what I've been doing, doing, yeah, what I've been doing too, is like kicking the ball end mill over as far as I could like realistically get yep. it basically. Get as so close like, to the full diameter. Yeah. And so yep. that helps with service footage too. Oh yeah. And I would love to be able to do that. Yeah. And so like now the finishes are, they're a lot more consistent, I guess, which is good. And basically tool life is up. And what's surprising nice. is it's a lot faster to get it to properly shear a chip. Like yesterday mm. it was like 600 surface foot with a quarter inch ball end mill. And yep. then that's like four thou per tooth. Oh, wow. So nice. it's like 120 inches a minute. And right. this nice. is like a three thou step over or step okay. down. I do wonder what the actual chip load is after all that chip thinning. Cause you're doing yeah. a really, yeah. a really fine step up and all that. Yeah. Trying and, to find a calculator for that stuff is really difficult when you're doing the surfacing. Yeah, and then you're you know you got the thing sideways plus the, yeah, the angle right. on the. It's <laughs> just an educated guess. Yeah, so that's been interesting. But something I I did and I should have realized this months ago was like I was having an issue with like the blades tumbling and then being in there long enough to where the tips were getting rounded off uh -huh. and like other other fine finish stuff I wanted like to keep sharp, but it wouldn't. Right. I was like, oh, what if I just tumble it with the tabs still on there and then nice. machine the tabs off after? <laughs> oh, yeah. That worked yeah, out so nice. This, yeah, so that's what I'm doing. And then, like, it actually has the tip now. And then it also, Sweet. like, the the spine and stuff where the jimping is is actually sharp because the whole thing's already been tumbled. And when you do the final passes, like, you actually do a cleanup pass on the outside because I'm leaving material, you get it doesn't take anywhere near as long of time to tumble those smaller surfaces plus yep. their, their uniform. So that's been really helpful. And then I bought some Lang stuff. I didn't oh. buy like a full table plate because I don't have that much money. Yeah. Those are ridiculously overpriced. Yeah. They're really, really nice, but I couldn't do it yet. So I just uh -huh. bought a plate for the fourth axis and then some studs Hell and yeah. then material. And then what I wanted to ask you guys, like you guys do, I know I've asked the pallets you guys have, you guys do like single part per pallet or you do knife parts per pallet? Like, is it a group of parts for one knife or is it a pallet does like just this is, plates? This is what I was asking about a couple of weeks ago, but I was asking about how many operations to me it's always one part per pallet. The question is just how many operations do you put for the same part on a pallet? Ah, I'm a little bit different in that regard. Um, okay. So I have my main handle pallet. I really just cram as much, as many things as I can on a pallet. Just all about density. 
Um, and I try to balance it out. So like I do three sets of handles on a pallet. So then I need my other pallets. Like I, I fit two in my machine. The other one has to do three sets of blades and then also three sets of weights. So I try to get all of the components for a finished knife in one run. Part okay. of the reason uh, I'm doing one part per pallet is uh, I have less uh, tools for a tool changer, which I guess yeah. I'm not even using anyway. But I'd rather have to do less tool changes per pallet, um, especially if I'm limited to only 10 tools or whatever. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, there's all of the tools for blades are completely different than the tools I use for handles. And so... Yep. You know, it was very challenging to get, um, like, to make a finished serif, all of the components with only 14 tools. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> so so do you do any pallets where the blades are on the same pallet as, like, something aluminum or brass or whatever? Yep, yep. My blade pallet is also my brass weight pallet. Okay. How many tools uh, can you fit in your tool changer? 14. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So the I tools are all of my chamfer mills, and I do all of my edge breaks with a ball end mill. Uh, yeah, that's for small stuff. I'm kind of liking doing that. Yep. Then I have to pick and choose um, what tools have a des- like have a designated rougher and what don't. Yeah, that's another thing. I having a for a lot of stuff, I want to move to having a finished tool. Yep. Uh, not just the same tool. Yeah, and then I try to use like a dedicated finish tool in as many places as possible. Yeah. Yep. So it was, it was a bit difficult to dial those in with 14 tools, but I got there. Uh, back on, on John's question. Um, I, so I try to run one part per pallet, but as many operations, uh, ideally all the operations for that part. And the reason I do that is because say, and this happens to me all the time. Um, and I'm sure it's happened to you guys too, but say I scrap, you know, six handles because, one tool offset was slightly too large and it oversized my pivot area or whatever. Um, And I have to remake six handles to match the blades I already made. I don't want to have to mess with my code to say, Hey, ignore this part of the palette, only run this part of the palette. I'd rather just run that palette. Um, Oh, I see. So for me, it's kind of a mental organization as opposed to a, a a programming organization. I like a physical one. Well, yeah. It's different for me probably still since I still feel like I'm kind of in the prototyping phase where if I, you know, like, or with machine wise, Dalen, if, if you wanted to just tweak your handle weights somehow, mm-hmm. then like you'd have to get rid of your whole blade palette. Like, um, kind of like if for some reason you wanted them to be circles instead of triangle shaped or whatever, then like oh, yeah. pot- potentially now you have to make a whole nother palette, even though the blade part's fine. Oh, no, yeah, totally. Um, And yeah, so like, yeah, for prototyping, things like that, I have like, I I have throwaway pallets or I have old pallets um, that I just will prototype on and keep using until there's no more space on them. And then I'll go into like a production pallet. Yeah. And so that's my paranoia, even with different operations is I I change how I make stuff. And so, uh, you know, I have I have a pallet for blades that's just using rectangular stock and a palette for laser cut stuff uh, because I just want to, I want to fit as much as I can on the palette as possible. But I also, uh, if I just want to try a different steel or whatever, I can use the one that 
works for rectangles that I just, you know, saw or whatever. Yep. Um, but it's definitely different. And I feel like if, you know, the more we scale up, it, you know, it might change. Like, I don't know if you're doing, if you're doing like a, the full bigger size of Pearson pallets, do you think you'd basically just scale up the same stuff you're doing Within right reason, now? Um, my current pallets are like the perfect size for my travels. I think I'm using like 90 to 95% of my table space right now. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So, so, so uh, is it just one, uh, one holder, one Pearson holder in the machine? I have two. I have two of the mini pallets. Okay. The, okay. The eight by fourteens. Yep. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So, so the reason I the reason I asked is because I'm like I'm ordering this Lang plate for the fourth axis because like I want to be able to actually take the little tombstone off the fourth axis yep. and then put another one and not be worried about it not repeating. Like, yeah, exactly. Kind of thing. Um, so, like, my thinking is you'd have like one tombstone, and it's only going to be like a six by seven inch tombstone. I want to do eight, but nobody sells eight inch blocks that I could find around okay. here that was not like asking for both my arms in cash. <laughs> yeah, right. um, but so, my, my thing is like, if I do one, let's say one tombstone, a six by seven inch block, and it's all blades, right? I mean, you could, you can fit, you can get eight. Yeah, you can get eight blades on there basically, um, and so, like, uh, like Grant was saying about like scrapping eight blades kind of thing. That's I guess my only concern with doing that, and then having also like a million tombstones lying around because. Yeah, right. Um, but the thing I do like about doing just a singular part is then like if you mess if you mess the side of the tombstone up or something, or you, like you, you know, you have to make a modification then it doesn't feel like you're now starting to limp along like a half of a tombstone because it's got right. Like, the right fixtures and stuff on it. And then another thing is like tool life management. I don't do whatsoever right now. And it's really like kind of starting to hinder. Yeah. So I feel like if you do one tombstone or like, you know, two identical tombstones of one part, you can really start to track tool life. Cause obviously going from like titanium to stainless or mostly going to stainless to titanium tools don't really work no yeah, yeah. i definitely nice actually like know when to change things like yeah. based on pallet life kind of yeah. thing i keep or my tools material specific um of like 90 percent material specific i do i use like two or three tools for roughing on titanium that i that i machine the brass with but uh brass to titanium is pretty not an issue yeah, yeah and if and if you're always doing the exact same thing you can yep. still track tool life you know yeah yeah, I'm also here because like now I'm at a point where like I don't want to make modifications to the knife, which is you know like something for important for you, like David, as far as because you're still <laughs> excuse well, me, you're still prototyping. <laughs> no, but I like shade. I know what you mean because I'm like, oh man, do I really want to dedicate like this much it's investment? Yeah, yeah, as a and like, oh, what if I want to change something? Then. Right you know, you got to redo everything. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I only no. make like real production fixtures when I know I'm ready for production. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm trying to keep stuff at, at calling this V one. And like, I don't really think I have to change anything. You know, I think flippers will be pretty happy. Yep. People who are hoping that they can use my scissors to cut bonsai trees or, <laughs> 
some of the other crazy things people want to do. You know, right. they might have to wait a little bit to like keep learning about scissors. But yeah, I, I think it's healthy to to try to have a V one and you know because even machine wise, you're just saying like maybe I should come up with a V two. Yeah, um, definitely. Um, so like the serif is a little bit of a um of a special case because I mean like its core components are only handles and blades. Um, I actually forgot to include the weights when I first designed my fixtures. And I went, ah, oh, okay. shoot, I need to make weights. And they're not that big. Um, and I happen to have some room on the blade fixture. So I was just like, eh, screw it. They go there now. But okay. like the Prismas that I make, um, since it is just blades and handles, uh, that I just have a blade fixture for and a handle fixture for. Yep. Uh, do you guys... Um try to make it so that like your blades and handles are all compatible with each other, like different knives, different trainers. I was doing that. Uh, so all of my product lines uh, before the Serif had interchange interchangeability. The Serif uh, was actually supposed to be interchangeable. I just messed something up when I was pulling dimensions from my previous product lines. Um, yeah. So the, the V2 Serif will again be compatible with everything else people seem to really like that it's cool. yeah i think it also just makes your life easier like especially like grant you were just your trainers just the same uh handles right uh yeah trainer was the same handles it even was the same blade stock and like my laser cut parts yep um which was kind of funny because i had s35 trainers which i think no one had done before i did that for a little bit Oh, you did that? Okay. Yeah. I, was, oh. I mean, it was out of convenience, but people yeah, really... People always ask, like, why are you wasting all this money on S35? I'm like, well, it's not that expensive, and uh, it's easier. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was really nice. And I, I plan to do the same with the Gaboon, is make it uh, cross-compatible with the Medusa. It's if nice. only just because I want to test the handles with Medusa blades that I've already made. Right. And then make sure that the Gaboon blades make, match the same. And that way I have two points of sort of metrology when I'm outsourcing that I can refer back to, mm-hmm. um, which I think to me is huge because there's some weird dimensions like measuring your Zen uh, pen tolerances between the blade or Zen cups, I guess, on the on the blade. Right. It kind of gets a little weird to measure those. And oh, so it does. Like it's a lot or like yeah, your system. Or, or you're like doing it between pins. And I, what I do stuff. is I, I bought an ID mic that's digital and so i just like can set zero and then turn it backwards oh, oh, I, 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 yeah i know you're talking about it's like an id mic where it's like got two pins, pins. yep yeah uh, and and that works okay but the ratchet doesn't work backwards so mm. i have to just kind of have like a loose fit with my fingers yep get that uh, so that i don't like you know crank it yeah yep yeah and a long story short is i i do it because I want to be able to track, especially when I outsource, I want to be able to refer back to things I've already made. Um, Because if you make the handles inside and then you outsource 100 blades and they come in different, um, you know, who's, where does the buck fall? And so I'm trying to Mm -hmm. stop as many problems from happening. Yeah. As annoying as it is, whenever you outsource anything, if you don't have fully tolerance drawings and you get parts that are not good yeah uh it's always your fault Uh, yeah no absolutely uh which is yeah so i'm trying to make sure i know what my tolerances are (laughs) right without like over constraining and like getting stupid quotes on parts exactly Mm -hmm. yeah 
I, I don't have great knowledge of GD&T, and so I think a mistake I made is I got some custom pins made, my weird shape pins, uh, which is nice, and like I had some tight tolerances, but because uh, I didn't specifically specify they were intolerance, but they have a little bit of a taper to them, uh-huh. and so that was something I learned about where I was like, okay, I just got to use like a, a necked end mill with small cutting flutes and like do small steps around and then, you know, it'll have no taper or do lots of yep. like spring passes. Yeah. Uh, but they didn't know that, you know, they didn't go exactly. through that same process and it was intolerance. And so they, they work, they're good, but uh, that's one thing where like, I'd want to figure out if I ordered more, how to be like, okay, they're intolerance, but I also really want them to be parallel and straight. Yeah, yeah, GDT is a really, really powerful tool for drawings. Um, it's also a really powerful tool for emptying a bank account. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I've, I've been lucky that I've had a fair bit of experience uh, doing uh, drawings and working with GDT, reading it, calling them out, things like that. Um, I'm definitely no real engineering expert on it, but um, I do have some experience, which is nice. Yeah, I, I was lucky enough to actually go to school for this um and that's one of the few things i actually took out of college that really are helping me is yeah both creating and reading drawings um, yeah and yeah gdnt is like it's the best way to call out features yeah i i uh i learned about it in school in machining school too it's just like i feel like i need a whole you know year of learning about it or something and it was just like almost a side note is right. it was like, uh, Oh, by the way, this is the better way to do things. Here's why here's, you know, you see the circle and the square, the edges points, uh, you know, it's actually different differences. And so that yeah. actually constraining it and you don't have to blah, blah, blah. You know, I understood like the value of it, but how to actually like make a print. Definitely. Mm-hmm. I yeah, feel like yeah. I didn't really learn great. I learned GD and T by being handed a print at a job saying, <laughs> make this part. Yeah. And they go, Hmm. I don't recognize any of this. What does Google say? This is yeah, a bunch right. of hieroglyphics. This is yeah, some right. kind of Egyptian part. It's definitely, uh, I mean, fortunately, it is a pretty good way to learn, like, sink or swim kind of thing. So, Oh, yeah. I will say, um, being on the engineering side, so I, I had, uh, I think, a total of three classes of dimensioning um, actual graphical drawings, both nice. hand, hand-drawn and we ended up moving into CAD and and doing everything in the computer and stuff. Um, They're still teaching hand-drawn these days? Yeah, it's actually surprisingly useful. Um, Interesting. The, the biggest reason is because when you're drawing things by hand, uh, you can get a, you cannot get away with some of the things you get away with the CAD, where Fair. like if, if two lines are, like say, a 16th of an inch apart, by hand, it's very difficult to distinguish those two lines. So That's fair, yeah. Like, Having clean right? drawings... Yeah, so so you learn how to position parts and to move your views so yes. that you don't have those issues. Yep. You don't want overlapping um, like uh, tolerance lines and all that. Exactly, especially when you get into weird parts that have like a lot of hidden lines and like phantom lines and stuff like that. Um, yeah. It gets weird, and so doing hand drawing first, which was it was one class hand drawing and then two classes CAD drawing. Okay, um, it really does help you think about the way you do things, and then. I also went from that into being a machinist and I got to see a bunch of, let me tell you, bad drawings from Horrific. really, Horrific. really well-paid engineers from oh, yeah. very expensive places. And, oh, yeah. Um, 
it gets it gets nightmarish sometimes. So oh, I bet. Did you have to do this? I had to do a thing where they like gave me uh like drawings and I had to make an isometric view of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. You kind of go back and forth. You you draw you. Uh, it was different ways. They taught us all all about perspective and orthographic and everything. Nice. Um, they would give you a two D drawing, make an isometric part. They would also give you an isometric drawing, then you make a two D drawing out of it. That's cool. Stuff like that. I I also learned a ton of trigonometry that I've pretty much forgot by now. <laughs> yep. Trig is fun. I like trig. I like trig too, especially like the trig that we do, where it's solving a puzzle to find an angle or a shape or something yep. not yeah. trig where it's like proofs right. oh it's yeah just like mm-hmm. endless super long yep. this equals this which equals this yeah. i just have to do that on like a minutely basis back when i was a manual machinist because i wasn't given any software i just had to oh, draw like, oh yeah yeah the law of signs was my like best friend yep uh pro tip for any entrepreneur or not entrepreneur amateur cad drawer if you ever want to do trig Open up Fusion and draw a few <laughs> lines, and use your dimensioning tool to figure yep. out what angles they yeah. are. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, that's why Absolutely. I can't remember the trig. <laughs> yep. Yeah, the uh, the law of signs and my knowledge of trig actually landed me my first real manual machinist job. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did a lot of manual machining, but I I never really had to do practically anything that was angle outside of school. You know, in school I learned to use like a sign block and everything, but that's yeah. about. Like I never was, really had to actually do any on the job. It was mostly useful for um like uh bolt hole patterns that weren't called out very nicely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If, if like I that. had to, it was probably because a drawing had some weird tolerance or something, and I had to like, yep. figure out what the length of something should be that I could you know because it's like measure this thing you can't actually measure. Yeah. So you have to find something you can measure. Right. Well, do you guys want to wrap it up? It's about time. Okay. Yeah, sounds good to me. Sounds good. Thanks for listening. Yeah, till next week. Yeah, thanks. Bye. (laughs) Bye now. (laughs) Yeah, bye.